Welcome to Fragments of Blue. Join Grace and Laura each week as they discuss the power of Scripture to guide us through life's complexity into a greater love of God. Welcome back to Fragments of Blue. I'm Laura. And I'm Grace. And today we're going to talk about obedience versus potential it's hard to explain until we get into it. I yeah, think. it's kind of the way of viewing the world where potential and meeting your potential is everything and kind of deciding how good of a frame that is to view life through. Yeah, and especially your spiritual life. Yeah. So the reason we had started thinking about this, I had watched just like a little short three-minute sermon <laughs> from a guy named Reverend Christopher Lee, who's kind of becoming a little bit well-known in England for his Instagram 60-second <laughs> sermons that he does. So this was a three-minute sermon that he did. And I'm just going to quote him, pseudo-quote him. Sometimes I'll change a little bit because I really liked what he had to say. I'd never thought about this that way before. <laughs> he said, whenever I was bad in a class, my teacher would send a note home with me saying, oh, he's got great potential, but he isn't applying himself. And because of that, I never really liked the word potential too much. Rev. Chris went on to remind his viewers that God doesn't call us according to our potential. He knows us. He knows our potential. He knows all our weaknesses. And if you look at the life of Jesus, it might appear that he did not fulfill his potential. He was the son of God. He could walk on water, heal the sick, raise the dead. He could have told a mountain to crumble into the sea and it would have obeyed him. He could have called a legion of angels to set him free on the cross. He had that potential. Instead, he died on a cross rejected even by his closest friends. In that way, Jesus did not live up to his potential. But it wasn't his potential that God the Father was interested in. It was his obedience. It was his spirit totally open to the Father's leading, his attitude of not my will, but yours be done. And when you think about what people of the day expected the Messiah to be and to do, it appeared to them that he failed, even to his disciples. So they thought surely the Messiah would liberate them as Moses did from the oppression of a foreign regime. Surely the Messiah would set up a new kingdom like the Maccabee family had done under the Greek occupation. So I know and I love this story. I had kind of learned about it when I was in Israel for the first time around Hanukkah. It's part of the Hanukkah story. But Matthias and Judah Maccabee, who I think the Catholic Bible includes books of the Maccabees, and we don't have that. But Matthias uh, was the, the father of this family. Judah was his, I think, eldest son. They led a charge to overthrow the Greek armies, and they were sorely outnumbered. <laughs> Uh, they lived actually in a in a place where I did Modin uh, in Israel. And it's, well, driving, it's probably about a 40-minute drive to Jerusalem. They they marched it and were at war. <laughs> and they, they kind of built up an army as they went along towards Jerusalem. They took back that city, managed to take back the temple. And the story we have at Hanukkah, not that Christians celebrate Hanukkah, but the story we have is that there was a miracle so that they could cleanse the temple. They needed to have um, oil burning in the menorah, in the lamps for eight days. It was part of that ceremony that God had instituted, and they didn't have enough oil for that. But they prayed, and they put the oil that they had in, and it just lasted the entire eight days and eight nights, I think, that it needed to last. So the Maccabees, I think, were kind of like Messiah figures for a while. And that family, even Herod's wife was related to that family. Herod wasn't. <laughs> he was actually a foreigner. But he, at the time of Christ, still was kind of from that, that Maccabee family. I think that people wanted a Messiah to be like them, to be like the Maccabees, to be like Moses. And they wanted someone that was going to reclaim the land, 
that they, you know, under the Maccabees, they minted their own coins. And that was again done away with. Under the Maccabees, there was the founding of a public education system that actually at the time of Christ still existed. But they they thought surely the Savior of Israel would do that and so much more. Yeah. So what I'm hearing in terms of like what of all the Maccabees accomplished is that it was all very tangible. Right. You could see it. They lived up to their potential. Yeah, there was there was a real product at the end yeah. of this to show this was real. Stuff yes. was really happening. It was impressive and it was doing stuff. Right. Yeah. I really think that that's what even Jesus' disciples thought would eventually happen. Right. Yeah. Here's this man who's drawing crowds by the hundreds and the thousands. People are listening. They're hanging off his every word. And then he dies. He goes to his death in the most vile way possible, you know, in a way that for the Jewish people is a curse. I am sure it didn't look like he lived up to his potential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it's funny because as you were telling me about this idea for a podcast, one of the things that I thought was like, well, of course, Jesus lived up to his potential because he <laughs> saved all of us. So from the Christian perspective, like looking back, we can see yeah. the product. Like, what did he accomplish? I can see it. And it is the salvation of mankind. And that's right. huge. But in terms of like Christians living their lives and trying to see like, what is this accomplishing? Mm -hmm. I think it can be very dangerous to seek or to insist that if we don't see something like that, mm -hmm. then potential is not being used or this is not good. And the figure that came to my mind was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. who was like on his way to becoming a giant in the Christian world. Yeah. And, and he was urged by his friends to leave Germany and go to America to be safe. And he did. And as soon as he left and was in the States, he felt convinced that he had to go back. And his friends were like, why? <laughs> Don't do that. Like, we need you. The church needs you. Like, yeah. he, he was, people saw him as someone who had so much to offer. And in terms of potential. Loads. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Reading about his childhood and his upbringing is like, it boggles your mind, yeah. the potential and the gifting and the skills and the mind that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had, it was extraordinary. You're like, what mm -hmm. would you have accomplished if you'd lived to 80? Yeah. And his ability to communicate it. You know, there's a lot of amazing theologians that don't communicate well across a broad age range. Yes, or skill range. And he yeah. seemed to be able to reach both like the highly intellectual and he has books like uh, The Cost of Discipleship mm -hmm. that has been just widely read. Yeah. So his ideas and the way he communicated were powerful across. Like, so all of this is just to say loads of potential, yeah. loads and loads and loads of potential. And he feels like I've got to go back to Germany. He goes back, he is captured, he's in prison. And then very shortly before Germany is about to be fully liberated, he is shot. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, it's not even he's shot out of like necessity. It was like at that point, the Germans totally knew they were losing. They were just getting yeah. rid of people yeah. almost out of like, uh, like out of spite, out of spite. <laughs> yeah. Like it was a total, like they could have just You're let their prisoners live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then he was just killed. Yeah. And that was it. And you're like, what did that accomplish? And I mean, you can like talk about how like with some of the prisoners that he was around, he seemed to, there was a great deal of respect for him. But in really tangible ways, mm -hmm. it seemed like such a waste. Mm -hmm. Like, what was the point of that? Yeah, I was just listening to a, a talk and Eric Metaxas, who wrote 
this really big seller, uh, Bonhoeffer, was it Christian? Prophet, martyr, spy or Prophet, something martyr, like spy, that? Something yeah. like that. And he was just saying like, while he was in the States, he had gone to all these white Protestant churches and just felt like they were quite dead. And he had gotten involved with this, like, in the 1930s, a mega church that was Abyssinian and had been quite involved in just really speaking up for the oppressed, especially in the Black communities in the South, those kind of things. And he, his presence with them could have done a lot for getting this message out very quickly. You know, so when we're talking about potential, why did he go back yeah, to this It's not place like that, he had nothing to do there. Right. There was great yeah. work for him to be done. Yeah. And it might seem like that, but he absolutely also felt led that he had to go back to Germany because some of the things that he was witnessing and the oppression he knew these people had lived under, he's like, that is happening in my home country and I have to go back and I have to address it. And I think, yeah, just he left something that was probably easier and more ego stroking, and more, you know, more comfortable than he went back to for sure. And I think the way that it would maybe be framed today in terms of like ministry talk is maybe more productive. Yeah, more productive. Exactly. And we might say more productive than why, like, how could it be God's will that that you would leave that and that you would <laughs> then go to something where your your audience is much smaller, less people are hearing the good news? Yeah, it's just probably seen as a real disappointment. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like, a, it's hard to fully understand, I think, how deeply our society is, and the church in the West is kind of run on the basis of pragmatism mm -hmm. this idea of yeah. potential and seeing the product and making sure numbers that, yeah yeah but i know like in just kind of my own personal example of feeling this a bit is in me and nathaniel not having kids mm-hmm and being like, <laughs> this is going to sound really arrogant, but like, really? Us? Like, we'd be great. <laughs> like, practically speaking, yeah. we're, the, we're the people who should have kids. There are literally crackheads that have babies. E exactly. <laughs> lots of them. Exactly. Yeah. Like, Sarah, my yeah. sister, um, who has been a nurse, I should say, is a nurse, but she's becoming a doctor. Yeah. She'll like have stories about these women who come into the hospital and it's like their 16th kid, but they didn't want them. Like they just mm -hmm. are always. And I'm just like, how does that make sense? How am I supposed to make sense of that? And like, I've prepped for this. I've sought knowledge from older women. I have like read godly books about this. Mm -hmm. I have tried to even like make changes in my life so that the the things that I would wish for my children, I could say, honestly, I'm striving for myself. Like, you're like, yeah. I'm making these efforts here. Is this not the home that God wants to put a child in? Yeah. You know, like, God, I'm living by faith. I'm already living as a mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. And I know, Grace, that you yeah. know exactly yeah. what that feels like because you've, you've had that. Well, I think even too. with singleness, you know, I remember when I was probably about 16, I was like, you know, in order to be a good wife, I'm even within my immediate family, I want to learn how to serve them. I want to learn how to, you know, not pick fights, how to be patient and kind, because if I can't do that with my siblings and with my parents, how do I think that it's going to be so much easier with a husband? Wow, Grace, that's, so, that's really amazing at 16. Yeah, I was, I was planning ahead, Laura. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. I'm like, at 16, was I like, yeah. I need to stop picking fights with my siblings. I don't say that I always succeeded. 
But I mean, I was wanting to start that process so that I would be, you know, yeah, just a better servant and a better helpmate and stuff like that. And so there have been many times where I'm like, but God, I've got so much potential. (laughs) You really want to waste that? Yeah, I totally hear you there. (laughs) Yeah, it it is funny, but like it is a way of viewing spiritual productivity yeah in a way that like god clearly doesn't seem to see it that way Mm -hmm. and like there is some level of us making efforts to like figure out god's will so like you know people could argue well bonhoeffer felt like he was called back maybe he wasn't Mm -hmm. but the thing you get that like I kind of feel with that is if Bonhoeffer, as a person who was walking before the Lord in an effort to be fully submissive, thought that God was calling him and he didn't go, like, I think God actually mm-hmm. would has a greater, he honors more the desire to be fully submitted than to always be like fully right. Yeah. And so I think so much of this idea of submission and obedience versus thinking about potential and the practical yeah. side of taking things. pride in even taking pride in the gifts God's given you. Yeah. Versus yes. your obedience to him. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking too about like I wonder who in the Bible we could talk about like that that didn't have an opportunity to live up to their potential. And I was thinking about Paul. And that's yeah. and the reason I think he wasn't able to live up to his he lived up to his potential better before he was a Christian. <laughs> Yeah, he was certainly really? a more impressive person. Right? Yeah. yeah, like he was zealous. Well, he was as a Christian too, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And he was willing to like massacre the whole, you know, he was ready to lead people into battle to fight what he thought was blas- like a group committing blasphemy mm-hmm. against the God that he served. Mm-hmm. And he was able to do that. And then he becomes a Christian in a dramatic way. And, you know, his education, yes, it still plays a part, but he's like, I'm not even going to use the big words <laughs> that I know. I'm not even going to try and impress you with my knowledge. Like he said that before. And it's like God broke him down, laid bare his weakness and his pride, you know, like those kind of issues. And then at that point, when he was really broken, God could rebuild him to be a man of obedience. Mm-hmm. That he could say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Mm-hmm. Like, I, th- I think this idea of the the way which God measures spiritual success, although I think even just the term measures is just misleading, but <laughs> the way he looks at it, yeah. obedience is far more significant. Actually, the one story that is really clear about this in the Old Testament is Saul, King Saul, yes. and those the yeah. sacrifices that he makes when he has been called by um, Samuel to wait. Mm-hmm. Or the time where he's supposed to, like, sacrifice, like, kill off all of the people, including the animals, but he keeps some of the animals because he's going to sacrifice them Mm -hmm. to God. And it's like, you disobeyed me. I don't care that you were going to apparently put on this amazing show to show just how dedicated you are to the Lord through these hundreds and hundreds of sacrifices. Yeah. Like, all of that religious product is irrelevant when you've been disobedient to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I desire obedience not sacrifice yeah. and and you can see that Saul is just dumbfounded by the idea and and very bitter mm-hmm. that his way of looking at this 
is apparently so off that it robs yeah. him of the kingdom. <laughs> it was like he was blinded by his potential. Yes. Do you know what I mean? His yeah. pride. He's like, I have these gifts. I have these abilities. He stood a foot, like a head taller than everybody else, you know, around mm -hmm. him than the next tallest person. And he was like a commanding presence. Of course, he was born to be king. Yeah. And he took up those reins, you know, and he was he was proud of it. Mm -hmm. And I think the the story about Saul is so interesting because you see behind his his desire to offer all these sacrifices instead of just slaughtering the animals as he was called to as an effort to like cleanse and purify mm -hmm. the land that while very much on the surface he believes and he deceives himself into mm -hmm. himself into believing that this this is fully an act of surrender to god and a way of expressing his surrender to god there is actually an element of holding back. Mm -hmm. So in the desire, sometimes I think to like fully, I'm being a little bit, I'm being a little foggy in the way I'm expressing this. I think in our desire to like fully live up to our potential, even when we think likely that there is a fully surrendered heart there, mm -hmm. I think there's often deception mm -hmm. underneath that where the idea of giving up the things that are like closest to our heart, we think we do best, the just the looking good, having a really polished product in the end. There is so much deceit in the pride that those things, you know, mm -hmm. stir up yeah. that I think it's hard for us to acknowledge that the desire to fulfill our potential, there's likely an idol at the bottom of that. Yeah. Like the way the way Saul has that conversation with Samuel, he does eventually come to the point where he confesses that there was there was fear that like there was mm -hmm. sin at the base of that. It was not just like I didn't understand and my motives were 100% pure. Yeah. yeah. And I that's the thing is is Saul, he got to a point where he wasn't willing to let God break him to be used by him anymore. He just wasn't, you know, he knew better. And I think that's such a danger when we're when we're living up to our potential, when we're when we're doing the things we're good at and people are praising us for it. There's so much danger there for pride to creep in. And pride being this root of all sorts of sin, it can just completely blind us to our sin. Completely. And I think there's so many ways of I mean, this is so difficult in the church. I think there are a lot of ways where we put potential ahead of obedience that looks really spiritual and yeah. is not. Like, yeah. for example, the reticence of so many churches to exercise real church discipline. Mm -hmm. You can say, this is us being um, merciful, or this is us. I, th like, there are so many reasons to justify yeah. not pursuing good church discipline. Mm -hmm. And you can you can offer so many extenuating circumstances for why you shouldn't and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what you see there is you are seeing a potential for your church to be great, or you're seeing potential for your, you're seeing the possibility of the greatness of your church being harmed mm -hmm. by fully and confidently following through in obedience on what God has laid out. Yeah. And you can't see that over the decades that you're working in this church, believing God's way with church obedience actually is better. And you can't see why, and it's not mm -hmm. tangible at first, but maybe decades down the road, you're never giving God the opportunity to show you why obedience is truly more spiritually rich. Yeah. And productive, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because when we're comparing Saul to King David, you see David acting in obedience to God, putting himself under God's authority, 
and not living up to his potential for a very long time. He's already anointed king, but he won't lay a hand on a man who was also anointed by God to be king. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, I have to wait on God's time. God will remove him from that position at the, the appointed time. And I can trust that God will put me in the place that he intends me to be. It's not for me to take. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be under the, the hand of God. I have to be in submission to him. And so there's so many times where David had opportunity to take control or to, to grab onto the thing that he already knew God even wanted for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he was willing to wait. Yes. He submitted himself to God's timing. Yeah. And he did. We see like, yeah, he sinned and majorly. But we also see so many times where his obedience cost him something mm -hmm. and he still obeyed. And in the case of him choosing not to lay a hand on Saul, you have to imagine, like I would, I would just think for sure he could think of very many practical reasons why Saul ought to be removed right. for the health of the kingdom and, yeah. you know, all this stuff. There's very... For the building up of Christ's body. I mean, Saul, even if he was anointed by God, was not a representative of God anymore. Yes, 100%. Right? And it was known that like his his favor had been removed from him. So you're yeah. like, surely, surely that there can be a lot of good and there will be a lot of damage letting Saul stay. Mm -hmm. He clearly is out of control. Like he's not living a godly life. He should yeah. be removed. And David seems to be clearly given a few opportunities and his followers are like, dude, <laughs> come on like yeah. what's the deal and that's such a perfect example of us being told by god this is my method this is my way mm -hmm. us feeling like surely not surely the thing that will like fulfill the potential the most is this other way and you're like you that is not our call to make yeah that is the call that I think Eve was trying to make. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, and it's just like, you don't get to make the call of what is most productive. Your call is simply to obey mm -hmm. and to believe that God, being infinite, all-knowing, outside of time, seeing all that is going to happen and the way it will fall through, when he tells the church to do something a certain way, when he calls someone to do something that seems to, like, ask them to blow off a fabulous career or whatever, he's the one. Yeah. Who really knows? Yeah, he knows what's going to be of eternal worth and value. Yeah. But actually, even more than that, does he need us for anything? Not really. No. Right. Like yeah. he includes us and he invites us into what he is doing. And that is a huge blessing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he does want us to be his hands and feet, you know, on this earth. He wants us to live in a way that honors him, but doesn't need us to accomplish things for him. Mm -hmm. Certainly know? not if we're going to do it in disobedience. Right. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Or like even just doing it and pride then taking root in our lives. Like mm -hmm. that is not going to benefit us in our relationship with Christ. And it probably won't just honor him in any way, shape or form. I really liked, so this Rev Chris <laughs> is his, his handle on, on Instagram. He went on to say, he said, it's often our, in our recognition of our brokenness and our need of a savior that we turn to him and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And I think that Lord is so important. He is Lord above us. So it shouldn't be our will. <laughs> he goes on to say, and that's why when we're weak, we can be strong. God knows you and calls you not because of what he thinks you can do in the future. It's not about your potential. He calls you because he knows and loves you now. And he just wants your open heart turned towards him. 
You can't hide your weakness from God. And I think there'll be some people maybe listening to this that are like, yeah, I've got lots of potential. Why isn't God using me in this way or something? But I think there's also a lot of people that feel they have no potential. And the point is, God doesn't want your potential. So it's great. If you're weak, it is God that lifts you up and makes you strong. He uh, goes on and he says, sometimes we try and compartmentalize. We polish ourselves up, add a little shine to our faith, put on our church clothes and do our best to advertise to our faith community that all is well in the body of Christ. They love Jesus. He is Lord. But when you get back in your car, you drive out of the church parking lot, you feel a fraud. Or you feel afraid that maybe everyone else there is feeling as faithless as you are most days. You get home and put on the anxiety you tried your best to remove that morning, and you wonder, does God really love me? How could he, when he knows all the dirt, all the weakness? How could he watch me entertain my inner demons and still want anything to do with me? He sees you entertain them, and he sees you fight them. Some of this is Chris, and some of this is me. <laughs> uh, he sees all your weak places and the promise, and he promises a great exchange, his strength for your weakness. Paul wrote about this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He told them about what he called his thorn in the flesh. And he said that he pleaded three times with the Lord to take it away from him. And then he writes the response God had given him in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. He said, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So how do we enter into God's strength? How do we live in obedience rather than worrying about our potential? By forgetting about living up to our potential, forgetting about our reputation. Like Jesus, it said he made himself of no reputation. And by stepping forward in obedience, how do we walk in obedience? Listening to God's voice and obeying it. How do we know God's voice? By spending time every day in his word and in prayer. How else can we learn to hear the voice of the shepherd? And I think we're pretty close. Do you have anything to add, Laura? No, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I think we're out of time. But thanks for joining us on Fragments of Blue and join us again next time. 